Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. My guest this week is Nan Wise. Nan is a neuroscientist and sex therapist and author of the book, Why Good Sex Matters. It's such an important discussion, but be aware that it does contain frank conversation about sex and sexual trauma, and listeners should use their own discretion. COVID-19 has put a timeout on so many of our sexual activities, including real sex. The dopamine system is meant to get us into the world with some enthusiasm and motivation to do things like get fed, have shelter, you know, have intimacy. Can I have sex during the COVID-19 pandemic? And the short answer is yes. It's never been easier to have sex. Birth control is ubiquitous. There are less social taboos about sex and you don't need a serious or even casual relationship partner. Just jump on Tinder and off you go. So why is it that teenagers and young adults are having less sex than previous generations? Pleasure is the first good. It is the beginning of every choice and every aversion. It is the absence of pain in the body and of troubles in the soul. Hi, I'm Dr. Nan Wise, sex therapist and neuroscientist. I wrote a book about why good sex matters. Sorry, not sorry. So, Nan, thank you so much for joining us. Before we get into sex, I just want to take a step back right now and talk generally about pleasure. Why is pleasure so important, and how does it change our brains? Well, our brain systems, the core instinctual emotional systems that we share with literally all mammals, for sure, and other animals, actually runs on pleasure and pain. Pleasure is wired to give us information about hopefully what's good for us and pain, what's bad for us. So pleasure gets a bad rap in our culture. You know, we tend to have a very love-hate relationship with pleasure in general and sexual pleasure specifically. Yet, basically, without the input from everyday pleasures, and I like to say healthy hedonism, like pleasures that feel good and are good for us, a good meal, exercise, making love with somebody that we generally like and who likes us, all of that makes our brain chemistries work better. And when the brain chemistries work better, we are better functioning friends, lovers, parents, citizens, all of that. It's not that it's just a byproduct of the brain. It's necessary for the brain's proper functioning. And is sex just an amplifier for that? 
I'm just wondering what is different about just pleasure and then sexual pleasure? Well, that's a great question. And honestly, Alyssa, so little work has been done in really understanding the brain correlates of pleasure and sex. So the papers and the research I've done have really kind of been a big gaps in the literature trying to fill in some of the blanks. We know so little about how actually pleasure works in the brain body. And at the same time, it's so, so important. So important. I can't begin to tell you how our relationship with sex, the reason why I wrote Why Good Sex Matters, wasn't about sex. It was really sex as a window into our relationship with pleasure and beneath that, the balance of the emotional brain. And I was motivated to write that book to go beyond the people I was treating in my practice to address a bigger issue that was going on prior even to the pandemic. Something I talk about in my book is the pleasure crisis, where we have had an explosion of anxiety disorders. Depression is now the number one reason why people have disability and illness in the world. And we were also experiencing basically a sexual recession across all of the developed countries. Over the past 30 years, the percentage of Americans that had no sex in the prior 12 months was almost one in four. Significantly less are having sex on a weekly basis and slightly more on a monthly basis. So presumably some of those that were having sex weekly are now having it monthly. One factor is obviously age. The 60 and older demographic grew from 18% of the population in 1996 to 26% in 2018. And because older people have less sex, that has the effect of lowering the average for the overall population. However, quite clearly, the lack of sex is driven mainly by the 18 to 29-year-old age group. Something has been amiss for us, and this is leading into the pandemic, and it's not getting better, it's getting worse. When people are stressed out, what happens is they become emotionally dysregulated. And you see this with people spilling into anger, fear, rage, anger. You see this in our politics where everything becomes so polarized. People are really, really triggered. So my book is about understanding the basement, the evolutionary emotions that are instinctual that we share with animals. And when we understand how these work and how they're supposed to work and how listening into our bodies and paying good attention to our bodies helps us regulate ourselves much more effectively. You note in your book that people are having less sex and enjoying it less. What does it say? about us as a culture that our sex lives are suffering? And do you think that since COVID-19, things have changed at all? Well, that's a great question. People are trying to get a sense of researching this, what's actually happening. It was my hope that given things slowing down, where people are at home more, where they're face-to-face, potentially flesh-to-flesh, and having a little bit more time on their hands, they might actually connect where they really talk to each other, where they really get intimate. We don't know really what's happening. But I would say that going back to your original point about the pleasure crisis and people enjoying sex less, what I talk about in the book is a condition called anhedonia. An means without, and hedonia is pleasure, without pleasure. 
And if you look at all of the major sort of mental challenges, whether it's depression, anxiety, certainly even psychotic disorders and stress-related disorders, physical disorders that are made worse by chronic stress, what one of the most common underlying complaints people have is the inability to experience pleasure. And that makes people worse. So if you wake up and you're depressed and then you can't have satisfying pleasures that you're like locked into this flatness, you don't really want to relate. You don't want to connect. And then you get into even worse cycles. This is really wake-up call for all of us. I think what I'm trying to get out there is that the coronavirus crisis can be a great opportunity for us to revisit what's really important, to reboot our emotional system. For example, one of the things I say, we need to be outside and get sunlight. Sunlight goes into the eyes, back to the hypothalamus that runs everything. Sex, motivation, every kind of process, metabolic process in the body. It starts with the hypothalamus. We don't get enough natural sunlight and we wonder why we're miserable. So that's just an example of if we can take this opportunity to really revisit and reboot ourselves, that maybe we can get in touch with what's really important. You know, unfortunately, we hear a lot about people being so triggered and so enraged. And yes, that's true. But most people behave very well and they're considerate, they're kind, they care about their fellow people. And unfortunately, what we hear about, what we see about in the news and on social media is so upsetting that it kind of takes even any of the air in our pleasure balloons out when we feel surrounded by all of this defenses, the rage people are having, the blaming, the fear. And I think one of the basic issues, Alyssa, is people forget they have bodies. They are so in their heads that they don't connect with sensations in their body and the information that emotions convey so that we're like heads on sticks and too much mind is not necessarily a good thing. I think a lot of people are walking around very disconnected from their body. And I think the more that I'm learning about my own trauma in my life, I'm realizing that I really have to try to heal that trauma from the bottom up because there's just certain trauma that I've stored in my body that I wouldn't say prevents me from having pleasure, but it definitely subconsciously is a reminder or a trigger. And I think I can do all the psychotherapy in the world and speak to my therapist about what's going on in my brain and those obsessive compulsive beliefs that I spiral down into. But until people really connect what's going on with their brain with what's going on in their body and vice versa to really heal from the bottom up, I think it's really important. But I wanted to ask you, where does sexual trauma fit into this conversation as we're talking about a pleasure crisis? 
Well, you know, one of the things I like to lead with, and I don't want to take anything away from people's specific traumas, certainly having a sexual trauma or some sort of relational trauma or physical trauma is terrible, but in the biggest of pictures, life is trauma. And I think when we can learn to accept that and to understand it in a way where it connects us with ourselves and each other. And the reason why I really wanted to write the book, and my next project is going to be why core emotions matter. So it doesn't have the sex part up front because people get really hijacked by sex. Is that when we understand how traumatic, painful experiences loom so large in the association, the automatic learning that the mid-level mind does. So we have these core emotions in the brain's basement that has us seeking what we need. We need to connect with people. We need to have care. We need to be able to be playful. That's how we experiment. That's how we learn about the world. We need to explore the world. All of these are wired in systems. Humans are pleasure-seeking beings by nature. Looking at small children, we can see that they're always aimed at seeking pleasure for themselves. When they grow up, this pleasure-seeking often becomes a bit more refined. We learn, for example, that it's sometimes necessary to undergo pain in order to gain pleasure. We need to protect ourselves from danger, which is fear and rage. And obviously, lust is the urge to merge. But what we also need to understand is that those systems, we get kind of born with a certain tonality of them. Like my whole family, Alyssa, has anxiety attacks. That's our wiring. So that system, the panic grief system that's responsible, it's a dark side of connection. It gets triggered when we have a threat to our relationships or our resources. Some of us are hot wired for that. Other people are hot wired to get angry or fearful. When we understand a little bit more about how we are wired and then our experiences, the automatic learning that we make, the associations between, for example, something that gets connected with sexual trauma, which might be people have a hard time enjoying the pleasures of their body if their sexual connection is a pain connection. So this is the associative learning, the automatic learning that the mind-brain is designed to do so exquisitely and automatically. And the cool thing is, is that we can use our more developed kind of thinking brains to better operate all of this and to better understand it. And that's how healing happens. We don't get rid of trauma per se, but we learn new associations that can help us kind of like develop a better experience of pleasure, better experience of our sexual lives or our relational lives or wherever we've been traumatized. We can have new learning that creates a better map for us and how to navigate with ourselves in the world with each other. Yeah, I agree. I think for me, it's about creating new pleasure memories to take control of the trauma memories to sort of overshadow. But I also think that there's a need for all of us, and especially those who have had sexual trauma, like there's got to be a way to resolve the shame. And if you haven't been sexually assaulted, there's also like this weird shame. I have like this weird shame about my husband seeing me give birth. 
of like, oh my God, how could he possibly still be? By the way, I have an eight-year-old and a five-year-old. So this has been quite a while, but there's two things that happened to me. One of which is giving birth was so invasive and traumatic for me that it brought up my sexual assaults, which women do not talk about at all. That that invasive sort of not having any agency over your body can be very reminiscent. And, it, and it's just, it's a, giving birth is, it's almost violent. And you lose agency. I joke about like, if there was a Cadillac in the room, they would have backed that inside me. And then so much of that sort of created this weird dynamic of like, oh my God, this man has not only seen me naked in the most pleasurable of circumstances, but also in the most vulnerable which to me is so reminiscent of allowing myself to be vulnerable again, to be open to trauma. And I think a lot of my postpartum depression was that connection I made with giving birth, feeling the same as trauma. Giving birth is traumatic. It's a very traumatic experience. Any way you cut it, most of the time for most people. And like I said, life comes with all sorts of traumas and we're not equipped, we're not kind of educated as to how to navigate that. And I think the connection that you say between shame and sexual abuse, there is a primary connection between shame and sex, period, that we have, I think, carried as the Puritans. Hard-coded into our brains and bodies is the desire for sex. It's evolutionary. All living things are driven to reproduce in a way that's beyond our conscious control. Now, I know that it may even go back before the Puritans. It may go back to when people started to think about sex being a vehicle of giving birth to children and then children needing to inherit properties and all this other stuff, you know, like when we change from the people who are just kind of wandering about to landowners and all of that. But getting back to the shame thing, this is such a connection. And I think what it stems from is that the shame is what results when we're afraid that our behavior, whether it's our sexuality or being too big for our britches or having too much fun or having too much pleasure, is going to result in us either being ostracized from society or where it's not safe. And I think what we're talking about is the core thing is that we as human beings need to feel safe. So when we've had an experience when We've been traumatized by something like a sexual assault or a physical assault or something that happens that takes away the feeling that we're safe, that we're okay. That affects us in such a core way, it becomes very difficult to relax into the kind of pleasure and connection that we're capable of. And that we're hardwired for, I would think. Yes, we're hardwired for the pleasure, but at the same time, and connection, we also very powerfully learn that we're not safe if we have these really potent experiences of danger. Fear learning, which is really the root of all of this kind of stuff, is one of the most robust learnings that any animal or human being can have. So this gets so encoded automatically in our brain bodies 
that we are so tense and we can't release and relax into the experience of connection and pleasure that it's something that's really difficult to work with unless we work with and we understand those systems and how we can work with them in our body and learn how to signal to our brain bodies that in fact, in present time, we are indeed safe. A lot of the work I do with people is helping them work with the core autonomic nervous system, which is where the flight or fight stuff happens, and helping them literally change the tonality where they're not triggered into flight or fight so easily. So you talked a lot about education and how we learn about things and about sex. I'm wondering what's a healthy way to teach my children about sex. I think most kids get some sort of education about sex from watching porn on their iPads. At what age is the right age to teach a child about sex? And what is the best way? That's the same question Maria Shriver asked me on the Today Show. And it was a great question. And the answer is, I think, first and foremost, is us as individuals to do our own work on getting comfortable in our own skins, get comfortable with our erotic potential, get comfortable being sexual beings. So there's some really excellent programs out there that do that kind of education for parents to let parents kind of know how they can work with themselves. And if there's some trauma, I would absolutely, if somebody has a traumatic sexual history, to go and get some therapy. Sex therapy is a really wonderful opportunity for people to work through some of these old experiences. And then in terms of talking to our children, those resources help us identify what's appropriate for each age to gear it to where each child is developmentally, to be able to be an askable parent. And what an askable parent is, when you get comfortable with your kids' feelings, this is like the most important thing I've learned as a parent and as a psychotherapist. And when I learned this, my being a parent, my being a therapist became so much easier. Our jobs are really to tolerate our kids' feelings, tolerate our own feelings about their feelings so they can learn to tolerate those feelings too. So askable parents kind of give children the message, not just with words, but body language and comfort levels that you can talk about anything and everything with mom or dad. If there's one thing that the listeners take away from me today that I think is the most useful thing I've ever learned is if we can just let ourselves feel the emotions, be aware of what we're feeling in our bodies, breathe into it, they peak and release, and we can be present to ourselves and to our children, our partners. We don't have to rush in to try and fix them. I teach a lot of people about the value of giving and receiving sessions. And what's a session is learning how to really, really listen to somebody in a way that they hear themselves more deeply. So getting back to what you're talking about with kids, they pick up. It's not what we say. It's also how we say it. So a lot of parents are asking, well, well, how do I now talk to my son about the birds and the bees? We had a conversation that we all kind of followed script, those of us, those parents who were willing to do it, 
um, although most people learned about sex through their friends and through, through other exposure. But having parents speak to their children about sex is critical, just like you would speak to them about not crossing the road and how to cross the road and, and so forth. I remember my son, I'm a grandmother of two. My youngest grandchild turns one tomorrow. And my son, who is 34, I remember when he was like in sixth grade. It was a very funny story. We wanted to ask him, was there anything he wanted to know about sex? And he looked at us and he said, thank you very much, but there are perfectly wonderful people at school who are paid to talk about this with us. And I thought that was hilarious that he told us that he really didn't need or want us to talk about it. He's like, I'm good. Thanks. I'm okay. I'm good. But he was also an adolescent male. Their kind of job is they get filled with all that testosterone is to kind of find their way separate. And he also came to us at one point in college and was chatting with us and asking us about things about sex. And when kids are ready and whether they're little kids or big kids, listening to their thoughts and really be good at hearing what they're really saying. This is unrelated, but my son, well, sort of related. My son had open heart surgery when he was four. And I remember being terrified at the idea of him having open heart surgery. And I had some great coaching from my therapist at that time to ask more questions. What did he think was going to happen rather than kind of having a sort of agenda to explain stuff like, what do you think is going to happen when you go for the surgery? And then you can really listen to what they're thinking and what they're feeling. And validate their feelings. I think that's the most important thing we can do as parents is not just say, it's going to be okay, it's going to be fine. But to, to actually listen and say, you know what? Yeah, this is a scary time. Tell me why you're scared. Oh, yeah, I get scared about that, too. So that you hold space for what they're feeling, and it's vital. I have a question. Do men experience sex and intimacy and and all of that in the same way that women do? I mean, because from an outsider's perspective, I would say, nope, it feels like you can't even compare the two. Yes and no. How's that for an answer? It's both and. I think that men have their own version of anxiety and their own fears and their own challenges when it comes to sexuality. And I think there's some profound differences too. One of the things I write about in the book is how literally male and female brains, and when I'm talking about male and female, I'm talking about, you know, chromosomes. I'm talking about sex in the way of the biology. They form differently in utero. They get sexed. The differences in the body are one thing. That's apparent. But there are differences in the brains of males and females. Now, there's obviously overlap. There's some males who have more feminine kind of brains and there are females that have more masculine kind of brains. They're not in these neat little categories. And I do think that some of these brain differences drive some of the things that we see in terms of the different experiences. So what's the same underlying stuff is people feel insecure. They get anxious with men. It's all about the penis. Is it going to work? Is the penis going to work? And they get into their heads and these perfectly healthy young men can't perform. It becomes all about the performance and the penis. 
for women, I think it's, is my body good enough? Do I look good enough? Am I okay? Is something wrong with my labia? If I tell you how I want to take the plastic surgeons and the gynecologists that do labia reduction and suggest that maybe their male counterparts might think about having their testicles lifted and, you know, oh, it's, it's cra- like, what no, are it's you crazy. thinking of? Just profound. It's one of those industries, too, that's growing. Yes. It's not like we tried that for a little while and we're like, what were you thinking there? Like women are still doing that. I don't understand it at all. Why you would want any kind of elective surgery on your vagina is crazy to me. And this is how women are taught. Our vaginas are not good enough. Our bodies are not good enough. Our labia are not symmetrical. What are we judging? It. What's the standard? Is it pornography? It's porn. If there's one thing porn does teach you, it's what a labia is. That's right, you see those lip-shaped genitalia of the vulva as soon as she takes her horny little pants off. Now, there's really no way to know this unless you're constantly looking around at every other girl spread eagle, but everybody's labia looks different. Consider your labia a snowflake girl because no two are the same. I think people think, and again, Who knows? Who are these people and what they're thinking? When you talk to men, actually men say that they enjoy a woman who likes her own body. What turns men on more than women looking like they think that they're supposed to look is a woman who feels comfortable in her body. So when you actually look at the ideals of bodies, they've done some like studies, women think that men want them skinnier and men think women want them with more muscles and all of that. I think we're so bloody disconnected from being in our bodies and being in touch with our bodies and being really connected with ourselves and each other in a way that's satisfying. We get sold this bill of goods, this industry that is constantly making us consumers to somehow look better, smell better, fit some sort of ideal. And it's affecting young girls now and even young boys. Well, I think it's interesting that we have almost this constant exposure to sexual imagery everywhere we look, right? There's porn all over the Internet. I just can't figure out if culturally we are too sexually repressed or are we hypersexualized? It seems like we're both simultaneously. Both. When you squeeze something really tight, it comes out the other end. You know, we are Puritans. When I was a young woman, I remember going to Europe with my husband when we were, you know, like in the first year of our marriage. This is going back to like the 80s. And I'm looking around in France and I'm looking around in other cultures and there's these grandmothers walking around without tops on. On the beach, people are naked and nobody gave me any creepy looks. I remember... Then coming home and walking around with a bathing suit on the beach in the States and people like really being creepy, you know, looking at you and being creepy. I thought to myself, there were boobs on television. I'm like, these people are more comfortable with their bodies. And I'm not so sure it remains the same. I mean, it's been a while since I've tuned into that channel. I think there's been like a wider culture of discomfort with sexuality. But people, I think, in other cultures laugh at us. Like when people talk about infidelity and we have like this big bruja about it, they look at us like, really? That's your big thing? You know, blowjobs? That's your big thing? Somebody had a blowjob? 
So I think you're right. We're inundated to the point that we're desensitized, but at the same time, we're so deeply puritanical that we slut shame women and girls. And I don't think any of this is going to end until we really have a change in our attitudes about inequality. It's certainly like in cultures that have more egalitarian sort of approaches to the sexes, there's less sexual violence. There's something about the way that we're looking at ourselves and each other and really having this kind of love-hate relationship with sex. And I hate to say it, a little bit of, maybe more than a little bit of misogyny. In your book, Why Good Sex Matters, you note that many of your psychotherapy clients, they just don't even want to open up about sex. Why do you think that is? This is such a vulnerable place that people connect with shame. And I think that there's this connection that it's dirty or we're dirty and pleasure is dirty. It's really hard when people are not feeling capacity for relaxing and being comfortable in their own bodies for them to feel comfortable discussing what we don't, we, we're inundated, but we don't have any like really good conversations about it that are sex positive. Even sex education, it's like, what do we talk about? If you Google sex, you get sexually transmitted diseases, you get right. sexual trauma, and these are all, yeah, but how about really blessing sexual pleasure? How about teaching kids in school that sex is a wonderful way to experience your own body and is one of the most wonderful things about being a human being from before we're born till born or deathbed, we can still be sexual. I mean, I'm pretty open-minded. I'm very self-aware. The idea of having to teach my kids about sex is so terrifying. And I wonder if that's just why we botch it, because we all go into that conversation thinking, oh, my God, I have to do what now? <laughs> I have to Well, tell we didn't get that ourselves. Right. Well, yeah, I got a book. My mom gave me a book when she was pregnant with my brother. I was nine years old and I read this book and I remember thinking, oh, my God, this is the craziest thing in the world. And then we just never talked about it. Ever. And then I remember finding my dad's Playboys when I was little, and that was kind of weird. And so there was just like this maybe overtone or undertone of it being so taboo to even speak of. And so it's stuff that I've carried into my adulthood that I've tried to overcome my trauma because I know all of this, like the logical side of my brain is super aware of, of all of this and is aware of the chemicals that pleasure sends out and that touch is the first language. I get it. I'm smart enough to get it. It's just healing my body and brain to or maybe retraining or, or I don't know what it I don't know what it is. What is it, Nan? Retraining is a great word. Because, you know, at the top of our minds, our smart minds, we all know what to do. We could be very sex positive with our attitudes. We want to eat less, exercise more, do all of these things that are good for us. What happens in the translation is what I write about in the book is how we get hijacked. And we get hijacked by the core emotional kind of instincts getting infused by these trauma learnings. Great case in point. I had a fabulous woman who came in and never had an orgasm. I wrote about her in my book. It's the brain that takes control, or rather lack thereof during orgasm. 
Using functional MRI scans, scientists are able to see brain activity in over 30 discrete regions. It's flooded with the anticipatory and feel-good chemical dopamine, which makes you crave the feeling again. This is in tandem with the release of oxytocin, a hormone that mediates bonding and love between mates. PET scans show, surprisingly, that brain activity during an orgasm is the same between men and women. She was the most, like, sophisticated. She was on her second marriage. At the top of her mind, she knew that sex, in her opinion, was great. What she had learned, and it wasn't that it was repressed. It's not like repressed memories that have to come out. It was she learned a connection between touching herself and getting her mom screamed at her one day when she was in the bathtub and the soap slipped in between her legs and she went down to touch it and oh boy, that felt a little good. Her mom walked in and started yelling at her. So that event, that one simple event taught her what was the same thing that the nuns at school were telling her, don't touch yourself. Now, if you don't learn how to touch your own body and lay down those pathways between your genitals and the brain, you're not going to be able to have an orgasm. And actually, she was in my office. She came to two sessions and she orgasmed pretty quickly on her own after that. But we were watching a technique called the coital alignment technique where it was this really cool how when a man climbs on top of a woman on a certain angle, if you're having intercourse, if you angle the body, you can have much more accessible orgasms. And we're watching these couples in this video that someone since took down, which was an instructional video. She started laughing so hard, these tears came down her face. Mm. And what she had was a huge discharge of, she's sitting there with me watching this graphic, wonderful, these gorgeous couples having this wonderful sex. And she was like a self-cleaning oven. She just burst into these like laughing, crying things. And she kind of had, again, this memory about her mom giving her this message. When we bring up a memory, and this is one of the coolest things I think of why I became a neuroscientist is understanding this stuff. When we bring up a memory, it becomes very fragile. So when we recode it, we can recode it differently. We can recode it in present time without all of the trauma and the negative emotions around it. We can really change it up. That's why as adults, we can revisit things that happened to us when we were kids and have a different relationship with it when we kind of know how the brain mind works. When we bring the memory up, we can kind of have the emotions peak, release, and then we're more present time. And that's where the fun is, present time. That's where connection is. That's where orgasms are. If we try and go after them, they can be elusive. But that's where the orgasms and the pleasure can find us in present time and connection. And I told people on my Twitter stream that I was actually going to be interviewing you, and people sent in some good questions. Are you willing to take them? 
I would love that. Thank you so much. Of course. So Hazel wants to know, is there anything an individual can do when it comes to anxiety towards sex? Oh, yeah. First and foremost is understanding that we can develop a very different relationship with our anxiety, even in regard to sexuality. So I put out on my website a whole kind of training program to deal with in the coronavirus, how to help people manage their anxiety. It's the same, whether it's anxiety about sex or anxiety about the coronavirus or anxiety, learning how to harness our attention, work with our bodies and elicit that calming. I can't emphasize this enough, being able to get into that safe physical space. That's what that gives us. And then, as we were talking about before, working with either a therapist if you want to, or if you actually have a great partner who you can communicate with, be absolutely authentic about your anxiety and be able to work around how you can get increasingly comfortable in sex. And then here's the big point I didn't even discuss. What do we mean by sex? That's the first thing I, when I teach a human sexuality class, whether it's to undergrads or to clinicians, is we talk about sex like we all know what it is. Sex can be a lot of different things. It might mean, for some people, genitals and friction. It's not sex unless it involves genitals friction. It might be about connecting with erotic parts of the body, and it might also be Anything that feels like it's romantic or sexual without even being physical. So I think having a bigger conversation with yourself about what sex means to you, getting some therapy if you want from somebody who's trained in this. Most of my therapy clients, I see for four to six sessions and that's it. So we create like a plan, how people are going to go forward. The other thing is really open, honest communication instead of feeling like, oh, there's something wrong with me that I have anxiety about sex. Well, join the club. Right. Anxiety. Right. Anxiety is wired into us. And people who had anxiety live long enough to get their genes into the gene pool. Hence my family with our rite of passage with your first anxiety attack so special. The anxiety can attach to all sorts of things. Sex is one very big area because it is a place that we're shamed. It's a place we're so vulnerable. It's a space where we experience such deep feelings, which makes that space incredibly transformational with the potential of incredible transformation. I'm going to say that this is an anonymous question from a man who is asking if there are any safe over-the-counter male enhancement drugs. Great question. Not basically anything that I would endorse. There's all sorts of stuff people use. I think the best over-the-counter sexual enhancement known to man is connection. Connection, I don't think you get that over the counter, but I think it's really about learning that sex is not about your penis performing. It's about your presence and your connection with your partner. So that being said, what we know about people who report lifelong, long-term sexual potential with partners, they all say the same thing. It's connection. It's being face-to-face, eye-to-eye, in the moment, in the sensations with yourself and that person, that erotic energy 
blooms. So, you know, it's the enhancement idea. Look, if I had a penis, I'd probably want an enhancement too. But that being said, (laughs) the best and most important organ is the brain. I even showed in one of my studies that just thinking about erotic stimulation lit up the brain like a Christmas tree, just like an orgasm does. So it's about being in the sensation, paying attention to the sensation, and really getting off this whole idea of performance. Even the performance drug, it's about performance. It's not about connection. I have a listener who noticed that her libido has plummeted in the last few months. She's only 33 with no pre-existing health issues. It's causing issues in her relationship. Is she just past her prime or it could be something medical? She says it happened very suddenly, like overnight. Well, here's a great question for her is what was going on about a couple of months ago when this happened. The first thing I'd look at is whether there were any big changes in her life. Women report a wide variety of psychological factors that lower their desire. The most common factors are a history of sexual abuse and trauma, distraction, stress, anxiety, depression, and poor body image. Women also report that the quality of their relationship has a great impact on their sexual desire. Stress is going to be the number one cause of a lost libido, even a quickly lost one. And as far as being over the hump, no pun intended, oh no, actually, our potential, particularly women think like, oh, you know, menopause. I saw another question about menopause on the feed. Yes. Did you know that there are women who actually report having better sex once they hit their 50s, 60s, and 70s because they're more comfortable in their bodies? And guess what? The level of testosterone, which is really what drives the sex drive in both sexes, is actually the ratio to the estrogens higher. So that's where women get a little bit more fiery, a little bit more, shall we say, Stronger in some personality ways can actually be great for, you know, I haven't hit my prime and I'm 62. I'm a grandmother. So I'm enjoying, I think, sex more than I did when I was a younger woman. And I think it's really about getting comfortable in your skin. And I would say to this listener, you can go to my website. I offer free 15-minute consults to people that can sign on on my website. I think it's really looking at what was going on in her life. It's not likely to be anything medical that would be so dramatic that she's not complaining of some huge medical symptoms. I mean, if people are in huge pain, their sex drive will go down. But I think this is probably environmental. And I think it might fit in, if I had to take a guess, something changed in her life that had her be more stressed out or perhaps more angry or more upset. Maybe the pandemic, that fear of being sick or someone that you love. I mean, that kind of corresponds with her timeline. Yes, it does. The threat, any time of a threat to our well-being, physical threat, emotional threat, that will shut down the sex drive because the sex drive is not really wired for us to be blooming when we're worrying about survival. I think my last question, I want you to leave my listeners with your very best piece of sexual advice? Learn how to play. I think if you can learn how to play and you think about sex as getting turned on by your life, 
rather than thinking about sex as an act, as friction, as an intercourse or anything like that. If we expand our idea about sex to something about being passionate and turned on by life and seeing our relationships like the bedroom as a playground, I always tell people, develop a new relationship with yourself and your life. Don't go out and look for a new partner because people do that too. You know, they like the new relationship energy stuff, you know, and learn how to play. We've forgotten how to play and playing is so important. Sex can be a lot of fun. There's lots of ways to enjoy our bodies, ourselves and each other. And prioritizing that, I think, is the last thing I'll say. Prioritizing pleasure as a healing, healthy force that makes us better Well, I wonder too just how much of our lives have been caught up in what we consider or think to be success, right? And usually that's a monetary success. And we are working so hard. I mean, Americans, eight out of 10 are living paycheck to paycheck. That stress alone, I think, would cause anyone to not have time or carve out time for pleasure. And I think probably this pleasure crisis is coming from what you just said about not playing enough, not being whimsical or magical or playful enough in our lives. And especially for children. Kids don't get enough rough and tumble play. My mentor, Jak Pengsep, the guy who mapped out the systems, said a lot of the issues that kids are showing up with now comes from a lack of learning how to cooperate and compete with and through rough and tumble play. So we need, I think a big part of what's driven this pleasure crisis is we're plugged into devices. And when we're plugged into devices, you're sitting in a room and everybody's plugged into their device. People are not connected, not to each other. So we need to unplug from the devices and get plugged into face-to-face, flesh-to-flesh stuff. And we can even do that virtually. You can't do the flesh-to-flesh or the touch stuff, but you can really, like I said to people, you can date during the pandemic, get on a platform and look at another human being and really ask them what's going on in your mind, what's going on in your body, what's happening in your emotional weather. How are you experiencing this unprecedented time of life? You don't think you're going to get to really know somebody in a substantial way? if you have that kind of connection and those kinds of conversations. So we need to stop making excuses and we need to be more connected. And that's what makes people happy and healthy. And I'm hoping that one of the silver linings in this pandemic is that we're going to learn again What's really important isn't the consumer goods, it's the health and well-being of our loved ones. Well, Nan, thank you for all you do, and thank you for being a part of the podcast. I'd love to have you back again because I could just talk to you for hours. A relationship in which the partners are attracted to one another and have regular sex is really important because sex somehow makes all the other things easier to deal with. Sex becomes much more important when it's not going well. It becomes, it's kind of becomes the destructive factor. In a good relationship, sex is about 25% of the, the substance, and in a bad relationship, it's about 90%. Personality, shared values, all those other things 
are way more important in a relationship where sex is just working fine. This physical component of attractiveness and sexual engagement is huge. It's hugely important. It might sound superficial, but I don't think you can do without it. On the other hand, you know, you have to have somebody whose personality, you know, jibes with your own in some ways, complements your own, someone who you genuinely like and respect. I don't think you can do without that either. Sex is the elephant in the room that most people can't stop thinking about, but also which most of us have no good language to discuss. We hide it or we flaunt it, and far too many learn from porn, which is so rarely a good teacher about good sex. We owe it to ourselves to be better. We deserve the ability to talk about sex without hiding from it, to have clear and honest discussions of what we want, assuming those conversations are with partners who also want to have these discussions and not just women you happen to see on the internet and find shameless ways to realize those desires. As Nan discussed earlier, pleasure is the thing that sex should bring. Not shame, not trauma, not fear. Pleasure. But without the ability to discuss it and with huge national institutions willfully shutting down the expression of and even the discussion of healthy sex, and conversely, with huge internet business forcing unhealthy sex down our throats, it is hard to get there. These institutions are willful conspirators in consent violations, in so much sexual trauma, and we need them to be better. I'm looking at you. Focus on the family and other large religious organizations. I'm looking at you, Pornhub. You're hurting us. You're killing pleasure. You're making bad men out of good men and bad sex out of good. We need a new sexual revolution to make sex great again, to make it pleasurable, and to make it healthy. Good sex matters. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. 